0: Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, we start with a major exhibition of Gustav Kaibot, his first American retrospective in 20 years. The show, titled Gustav Kaibot, The Painter's Eye, opens this weekend at the Kimball Art Museum in Fort Worth. It will be on view through February 14, 2016. My guest is George Shackelford, who co-curated the exhibition with the National Gallery of Arts, Mary Morton. The show's catalog was published by the University of Chicago Press. Then, on an extended second segment, Museum of Fine Arts Houston Paintings conservator Zahira Velez-Bomford discusses her investigations of several of her museum's famed Franz Klein paintings, including 1950's Wotan and Orange and Black Wall from 1959. Velez-Bomford will present her findings next Thursday, November 12th, at a Getty Conservation Institute symposium titled Abstract Expressionism, Time, Intention, Conservation, and Meaning. The symposium, which the GCI organized in affiliation with the Clifford Still Museum Research Center, is free and open to the public, but an advanced ticket is required. We'll have a link to that on manpodcast.com. The day long event will feature formal presentations not just on how ABEX work is aging, but about what conservation science can teach us and how it can bust myths about how ABEX artists worked and how their paintings were made. Among the artists whose work will be considered at the symposium are Jackson Pollock. Barnett Newman, Willem de Kooning, Mark Rothko, and Clifford Still. But first, George Shackelford, after the break. The Hammer Museum presents Uh Uh-Oh, the most comprehensive survey of the Los Angeles-based artist and writer, Frances Stark. This exhibition tracks her 25-year career, from early works on paper to more recent performances, animated films, and videos, including her critically acclaimed works, My Best Thing, and Bobby Jesus's alma mater backed with reading the book of David and or paying attention is free. Stark's singular practice explores her own life through an extraordinary range of subjects and mediums while offering a clever critique of contemporary culture. Uh Uh-Oh! is on view at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles October 11th to January 24th. Visit hammer.ucla.edu. The Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents... After Picasso, 80 Contemporary Artists, on view September 19th through December 27th. After Picasso is a major exhibition examining Picasso's potent legacy and ongoing impact on several generations of artists. This vibrant show fills the entirety of the Wexner Center's galleries and includes a diverse array of work from international talent such as Andy Warhol, Louise Lawler, Henri Cartier-Bresson, Amy Selman, Haimo Zobring, Jasper Johns, and many more. Originally organized by the Dykter-Holland and called Picasso and Contemporary Art, this exhibition is making its only stop in the United States at the Wexner Center. For more information, go to wexarts.org. And we're back. George Shackelford, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Glad to be here. I think listeners are probably pretty familiar with Kaibot's story. He's, he's a wealthy young man who painted and who started showing with the soon-to-be Impressionists in, in 1876 in their second show. But he was also a collector, and his donation of his collection of Impressionism to the state was, was kind of a real landmark in the entrance of that generation of painters into, into French museums. You've done a painting show of Caillabat's paintings, not of his collection, but I imagine that in doing it, you found yourself occasionally thinking about whether Caillabat is more
1: important as a collector and donor or as a painter. Well, I think he's critically important to the history of Impressionism as both kinds of person. He realized already in 1876, long before his career had blossomed, that his collection of Impressionist paintings was important, was worth giving to the state. And when he drew up a will at that time, he said, I I give these collections to the state. They'll probably have to wait 20 years before they can be on view. Realizing that the paintings that he had bought already were so vanguard that the public was unlikely to appreciate them for for many years later, well ironically, in twenty years after he drew up the will, they entered the state collections and did indeed go on view with one only of of his paintings, I think being on view, the floor scrapers the floor scrapers sort of announced his his joining the movement with the first painting that he showed with the Impressionists, though he had painted it for the Salon. And so it really marks that beginning of a career where he proved himself to be, again, incredibly important, I think, for the, for the defining of, of how varied the Impressionist movement, such as it is, could be. When you have Kaibot in the middle between Degas and Monet, you see that Ka- that impressionism isn't monolithic; it's not one sort of thing, and Kayabat really helps us understand that that concept. Is there
0: any particular painting exhibition person that turned the narrative away from Kayabat the collector and toward Kayabat the painter, the, the the painter who's now kind of getting his second big American show in 20 years, in fact?
1: Absolutely, it's it's a it's a bit of a process. The awareness of Kayabat came about. In large part, after 1964, when the Art Institute of Chicago bought the great Paris Street, Rainy Day from the Wildenstein Gallery.
0: A paint, let me interrupt just really quickly. That, that painting dates to 1877, so it's the year after. Only, I mean, it's as early as the year after
1: what we were talking about. Absolutely, and it's one of the it's one of the paintings, one of the sort of critical paintings that he painted almost a, as a kind of manifesto of himself, to be included with his friend Monet's views of the Garthalazare in the 1877 Impressionist exhibition showing this gigantic painting in, in an apartment in Paris. Well, it was really too big for an apartment. So after Caillabat died, it was put on deposit with a cousin out in the country in a chateau. Then the cousin sold the chateau, and the painting had to go on the market, and it eventually ended up at the Art Institute, bringing Kayabat into inevitably to the center of the Art Institute's presentation of what Impressionism was. In between its manes of the Christ-mocked or the great the great Surah of the Grand Jatte, suddenly you had this giant image of a man and a woman walking down the street that becomes the one painting that everybody knows by Caiovat, even if they don't know his name. In the aftermath of that acquisition, Wildenstein very carefully marketed Kaybot's paintings to a number of people generally not on the east coast of the United States. And two pictures were bought, not necessarily from Wildenstein, but were bought in this ni- late 1960s moment by a woman named Audrey Beck in Houston. And with the strength of her two great paintings and with her enormous support, the curator tommy lee in houston enlisted the aid of kirk Varnado, who was then a young professor in new york to do the first modern great Kayabot retrospective in 1976 and it took place in houston texas and a version of the show traveled on to brooklyn without interestingly enough in Brooklyn the Paris Street Rainy Day which was shown only in Houston in that exhibition that's really the beginning of a reawakening of Kayabot as a as an artist to be reckoned with in the impressionist canon
0: Paris Street Rainy Day is a great place to start i think it's the 4th or so painting in in your show and catalog Kayabot is is best known as the impressionist who first or most explored the new boulevards of Paris, the cityscape that had just been built or just been started by Hausmann. I I, I have two questions about that. I'm not sure in which order to ask them, so I'll probably get it wrong. I I guess first then, how did Caillabont come to choose this newish urbanity as his subject? What about the new, I don't know, geometries or physical
1: places of the city interested or motivated him? Well, you know, it's an interesting question, and I'm not sure that we actually know what His motivation was, but it was present certainly in 1876 with the painting of the floor scrapers. He was interested in modern life in the city, very specifically in a city apartment taking place. The other two pictures that he showed with it, uh, a luncheon scene and a man playing a piano, were likewise taking place in an apartment. But in 1877, he moved out of the apartment and onto the street and was deliberately painting the, the pieces of Paris that were his neighborhoods, the places where he went to and fro to visit Manet, whose studio was very near the uh the Plus it was then called the Place de Moscou or Moscow Plus that's now the Place de Dublin. Dublin. In that neighborhood, the, the, the street is essentially the same as it was in Caillebos Day. He walked up and down uh, across the Pont de l'Europe, the big bridge where he painted two of the great masterpieces in the exhibition. He saw out of these same rooms down onto the street, looking and, and exploring the, 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 the sort of surface of the Haussmann's Paris. And I think that That his provocation may have come from within and and just from some notion that he could perhaps make a mark by picking a subject that had that had real novelty as Degas had for instance decided to to seize on the dance as as a means of sort of creating an identity for himself Monet on you know the country landscape Kaibot focused in 77 in particular on the notion of the city street and in effect creating a kind of group of paintings that reported on what was happening out and about in Paris.
0: Is there any passage in Paris Street Rainy Day that that your eye keeps going back to to try to to try to solve to be captivated by. It. I mean I ask cuz there's there's one for me and I'm just kind of curious yeah. if there's one for you.
1: There are there are a couple of of moments that keep bringing me back to the painting. The face of the woman in the foreground beneath her veil I find endlessly beautiful i I keep looking at it not not only that she is inherently attractive looking but the way it's painted is so tender and and loving i love the pattern of little little rivulets of rain in and around the cobblestones on the street in the lower left-hand part of the picture and then i think the way these, this is more than one point, but the way the figures, the sort of secondary, even maybe tertiary figures in the picture, in the deeper parts of the background, the way they are orchestrated, the way Kaibot has the the technique of having one man's legs kind of emerge from beneath the line of an umbrella—you don't see the rest of him, just his just his walking legs—I think that's enormously sophisticated and and very, very uh, very compelling to me to, to just sort of ponder over all of those bits.
0: The part that gets me is the gentleman in the foreground, the, the man wearing the, the top hat, he's holding an umbrella and the extreme left of his umbrella overlaps a, a light pole in the background and very, I mean this is obviously a conscious painterly decision, frames the receding street between two buildings in the distance. The, the, the two legs below the umbrella, a different umbrella that you mentioned a moment ago are just below that. And I I in, in preparing to talk to you I realized maybe why I keep going to that. I Hausman rebuilt his first Parisian boulevard in, in eighteen fifty five, which is, you know, twenty-two years, a whole generation before Kayabat makes that one of his great subjects. But something about the way that umbrella does that thing with that street there suggests to me that that he wanted you not to miss what what interested him and what this was about, that he's playing with the geometry of the city in a way he
1: just doesn't want you to miss it. Well, he could hardly have picked a spot that was more conducive to showing off what the kind of radial plan could do in terms of shaping buildings, the sort of square that's behind the figures in, in Paris Street Rainy Day is not so much a square as what the French would call a carrefour, which is basically a crossroads where an enormous number of streets all come together, creating buildings that are all almost always like flat irons wedges which have narrow facades near the near the place but then expand outwards in in great sort of triangular shapes from that star that star shape in the middle and this is this is the best way to show that notion of recession into deep long identical carefully measured carefully controlled avenues that are that are part of not so much the 1850s development of, of Paris, but the, that of the late 1860s and early 1870s, which is where, where he is in this area to the, to the north and to the east of the Gare Saint-Lazare. So I think that he's, he's chosen his spot specifically to give you that, that, that information to paint very vividly.
0: This this broader spot, you know, you mentioned the Pont de l'Europe a moment ago. In fact, one of the, in fact the Kimball's own Kayabot is, is is of that bridge, and that bridge is not not far at all from the intersection portrayed in Paris Street. What about this area was important to Kayabot? Why did why did I mean he could have gone anywhere in Paris to I mean you know he had the means to do what he wanted. Why why did he paint what was close to him?
1: Well, specifically. He lived on the other side of the tracks, literally, from the, the, the area that's painted in the Paris Street Rainy Day, which was a much more elegant neighborhood near the, the Grand Boulevards. I mean, he, he was living when he painted Paris Street Rainy Day in an apartment that is very near the Parc Monceau in Paris. If, for those of you who've, who've been there, it's, it's a very ritzy part of town. When you cross over the Pont de l'Europe onto the, the Paris Street Rainy Day place de Moscou side of it, it became, I don't want to say more bohemian, but maybe a little bit less classy. And yet it was a neighborhood in which an enormous number of artists maintained studios. Manet was nearby. All, all Almost all of Manet's studios were painted, were in that very area of Paris. And so... It's it's a part of town where you find artistic people and yet also people who aren't quite as socially pretentious as his immediate neighbors would have been. And I think I think his notion of painting the street with people of all classes mingling that sort of sense of uh, a, a kind of demo- democratic equality at least among at least in terms of his interest in the look the physiognomy the the whole sort of uh, bearing of not just his brother and mother but also of people who were who were unknown to him that that was the place to find it
0: let's transition to kaiabot's paintings of people looking at other
1: things if you will
0: not quite portraits but not quite well definitely not not portraits pictures of of people reading looking out a balcony looking down at the streets of Paris from windows or balconies it seems to be a conscious decision to make paintings of people doing things that aren't portraits but are more intimate than than distant glances why what is what is that idea about
1: well I think Kaibot's art is almost always about looking and whether it's about someone looking at a printed page looking at their own handwriting, looking out a window, looking at sheet music, rarely looking back at the viewer. They're the the most straightforward portraits that seem to be actually people engaging our own own eyes. Uh, And there are some true portraits, the two of Richard Gallo, for instance, or the one of Georges Renan, or the one of Mr. R, whoever he was. Those are, are paintings that really that really engage you in a very classic portrait way but more often as you say his people are looking at something else they're looking out onto the street they are very seldom looking at each other and even when they're together in the same room they don't seem to be particularly uh, close and yet we are always always aware of KayaBot's proximity to them his, his own closeness to them in f- terms of physical space because he is so intent on telling the viewer where he or she stands vis-a-vis the subject. Crop- cropping helps him in this, and that, so that the, the everything about the painting, from its composition to its subject matter, becomes indicative of a kind of, well, gaze is a sort of overused word, but but a kind of specificity of examining things whether casually or very carefully and uh, and recording that examination recording that act of looking uh, this is why we've subtitled the exhibition the painter's eye because we're we're really kind of trying to explore the not just the optics but more but more broadly speaking the attitude that comes from that observation and that constantly looking at things
0: there are two paintings that <laughs> that came to mind as you were saying that one is the 1879 1880 self-portrait of Kaiabot in which it's not only Kaiabot his left arm is extended toward an easel and there is a person sitting on a sofa behind him who is all but obliterated <laughs> by Bye. by Kayabat's arm the person is reading which is something that a lot of people are doing in a lot of Kaibot paintings. But I, you know, I can't think of very many self-portraits throughout art history in which the painter paints himself kind of physically obliterating the other person or another person in a painting.
1: <laughs> no, and, and it's, it's because I think he was trying to paint very clearly that which was on the surface of the mirror into which he was looking. You, you said his left arm is extended, but in fact it's his right arm because he is looking at a mirror and he is painting on the canvas if you will exactly what he's seeing in the mirror literally everything treated he 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 doesn't he doesn't really talk about depth though you know it's there because everything has if you will been pulled forward and projected onto the onto the surface of the glass that's the mirror glass it's as if the painting itself is a framed mirror that has magically captured instantaneously the the its reflection so it's it's a very complicated game and he tells you that it's a mirror in a number of ways not only does he paint his paint himself as if he were left-handed when he was right-handed but he also paints his great masterpiece, or rather, the great masterpiece of his collection, Renoir's Ball at the Moulin de la Galette, now in the Musée d'Orsay, behind the friend on the wall, behind him and over the head of the friend, uh, and you see it in reverse. So if you, were, if you were at all savvy about Renoir's art, you would have recognized that that's the clue that this is, in fact, what I saw in the mirror this morning. And I think that, again, stressing the notion that it is a, an ocular thing, a, a, an exercise in doing in two dimensions what you have seen as if the three dimensions were perfectly two-dimensional on the surface of the mirror.
0: That's perfect, because it leads me into the, the other of these kind of personal disconnection paintings I wanted to bring up, and that's Luncheon from 1876, in which space recedes much more acutely and even abruptly than in the self-portrait at the easel, and kind of the pointer, if you will, that kind of instigates all that in luncheon is a, a knife in the lower foreground, a butter knife in the lower foreground of the painting, and then as you were saying before, it's one of these paintings in which you have three people, none of whom are acknowledging the other except for perhaps to take a sausage from a plate.
1: The fascinating thing about that painting, and when your viewers look at it, or you're listeners and the people on the website they'll see that it is as if we the painter the viewer are seated at the table in front of our own plate that's a half moon at the bottom of the canvas that that saying that the, the, what's at the very bottom of a composition in kaibot is often very 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 close to you in fact perhaps so close that you can't see all of it with, with without moving your eyes and then you realize that this is not a long oval table. This is a round table and that his mother is across from him and perhaps not very far away. If you look at the, the way the, the decanters and the, and the bowls and stuff are arranged they're, they recede in space far too much for their actual size. So it's one of those things where he's determining his own position. And then it's as if he has decided that the lines of recession and a vanishing point are going to determine the diminution of every item in the picture. And so they become much more almost theoretical, much more sort of methodical than truth actually or than true experience actually would give us. So I think in that painting he's so insistent on perspective and and on sort of a, a kind of old-fashioned Renaissance perspective schema that he adapts and it and it by sticking to the rules he creates something that is in fact not very much like perceived reality and he gets away from that later when he gives you for instance the woman reading where. We're, we're very, very close to a woman who's in a foreground, in a spin, spindle-turned chair, and then in deepest space in the background, but not given any of that perspective stratagem, we see a man who is almost too small to be only as far away sure. from Earth as, as we intend, uh, as we as- assume he is. So he plays back and forth across the across across his career with this notion of near far how much he obeys a kind of series of rules of of vanishing points and you know the paris street rainy day it's it's as if it were a kind of ideal city painting from the renaissance where everything goes back to these vanishing points that are predetermined he, he strays from that idea and to produce things that actually end up looking perhaps more like um, experienced reality. The other
0: great thing in Luncheon that, that jumps out at me is all the circles. I mean, he he drives home that, everything you were just talking about by including a ridiculous number of circles, the, the plates on the sideboard, the lemons or probably lemons on, on, on the tabletop, the glasses on the tabletop, the clock behind the woman at the far end of the table. All these circles
1: challenge what we're seeing with the oval of the table. They, they they help him establish, when they're on the table, they help him establish the sense of, of perspective recession, but then he just doubles and triples it by, by painting a tabletop that is reflective. This is not cutlery and and crystal sitting on a white tablecloth. He wants it deliberately on the polished mahogany surface so that not only do you get the roundness of the bowl its cover and the plate on which it sits but you get all of those things doubled in 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 depth in the reflection on the on the wood so yes i mean he's he's making that game a very complex one and and his his gambits in this way these sort of bits of calculation cleverness they're very different from anybody else in the Impressionist circle. They're so much more planned than the sometimes equally abrupt juxtapositions and strange effects that you get in Degas. And completely alien to the kind of, uh, of a sort of more old-fashioned ocular experience that you, that you get in Monet, where he is literally trying to paint that what he later called the envelope, the air between him and the motif. It's a different, it's a different game altogether with Kayabot. Much more, much more, as I said, calculated, much more planned.
0: There's more of that kind of planned calculation in the paintings Kayabot makes looking out windows and down at the city. He, th- This is a particular favorite of his. Pizarro comes to it later, but Kayabot looks down at the streets of Paris and groupings of people in a very unique and, and particular way. And I, and I can't think of another Impressionist who does it quite the way he does it. It's something that will obviously intrigue Vuillard and, and Bonard a couple decades hence. But in paintings like The Boulevard Scene from Above and A Traffic Island, Boulevard Houseman, he's almost painting people repelled by other people in terms of their spatial relationship to to the landscape? Is there something psychological at work here? Is there something pictorial, spatial? Why is Kayabat drawn to these
1: kind of tense overheadscapes, if you will? Well, some of that may be something you have to ask is shrink. Yeah, but, I wondered that as I was looking at it. But, but there is, I think, he has spent a lot of time looking out that window and seeing what, how people behave below. And, you know, I think what he's about in those paintings is that most people, when they're walking around in cities, aren't necessarily walking in pairs or trios. They're, they're walking singly and kind of, think of yourself walking down the street in in New York or something where, where the game is to not run into other people. The game is not to is, is to sort of figure out how you're going to maneuver the sidewalk and, and not hit somebody as, as you're going past. And yet most people don't have a particularly straight trajectory. I think he's looking at some of that and trying to suggest it, particularly in, in a boulevard scene from above, I mean, here, I think the, the only equivalent that we could see in, in an artist is is the views, the very vertiginous views of the stage in Degas. And it is worth noting that Kyabot had purchased Degas' great pastel over monotype called L'Etoile, the, the star, which is one of those dancers seen in an isolated movement against the Background of the stage, which becomes almost a sort of neutral territory, but which is literally almost completely tipped up towards the towards the viewer, or rather the viewer is leaning down towards the towards that, that flat plane. So we we find some sort of rhymes with his other with his other impressionists. But you're right, it, it's a preoccupation of Kaivats that is very particular, and that that painting. Uh, Boulevard scene from above, I'm convinced is one of the most, I mean, really one of the most radical paintings made in the later 19th century. The other thing I wonder about these two paintings in
0: particular is if these are kind of history paintings in the sense that pre Paris was, you know, kind of a medieval city with alleys and tightly confined streets. And just in the years when Caibot is making these paintings, all of a sudden, these big open public spaces and intersections and streets and sidewalks come to Paris for the first time. And it's almost like he's creating a social geography
1: of how the city experiences that and adapts to that. Absolutely. And I, th- I think it's hard for for modern day viewers to look at these things and recognize how new they are. I mean, for Kaibot to paint these sort of vast plazas and, and, and to to insist upon the regularity of Paris streets seems to us to be sort of reportage. But in fact, in Kaibot's youth, that didn't exist. It was brand new. It was brand new real estate. And it's as if Oh, I'm trying to think of a of an equivalent. It's as if you know somebody goes out and paints a highway nowadays. It's kind of funny because Los Angeles painters
0: did that en mass in the 1960s, right?
1: <laughs> and I, I was just I, I was looking, I was trying to find an East Coast equivalent. It's right. It's a Los Angeles thing. It's painting freeways, painting highways, and and insisting on that the pictorial worthiness, if you will, of something that is incredibly new and, and not picturesque. For us now, there's a kind of romantic view of Paris as this, the city of light with all these wide avenues and beautiful street lamps going up and down them and fountains at every turn. And that is really an invention of Kaibot's lifetime. So the, the painting of that and the celebration of it and the documenting of how it made people behave is something that that I think is very modern in Kaiba. it's a it's it's a history painting of modern life if you will it's a, an attempt to to pin down an aspect of of modern modern behavior that's particularly important and and fascinating to him
0: the last grouping of paintings i'd like to discuss are paintings Caillabat made on, seemingly on, and often near rivers. Lots of impressionists, and, and by lots I mean, you know, pretty much all of them, were, we're big fans of the rivers in, in and around Paris, mostly around Paris, I guess. How are Kayabot's rivers different? Does he animate them differently? Does he situate bodies and people in them differently?
1: What distinguishes them? Well, I think they're absolutely distinguishable from those of Monet, who was painting the same stretch of river with sailboats in it, by being fundamentally about people using the river. It, uh, this I, I'm particularly thinking of the the views of the Seine later in in Kaybot's career, where we have the regatta at Argenteuil, which is a late painting by him, where he shows himself at, at the helm of of his Uh, sailboat, the roast beef, a boat he had designed himself. And and he was actually, interestingly, in his lifetime, quite well known as a designer of boats, uh, as well known as as a boat designer as he was uh, as a painter. Earlier in the 1870s, before he bought his place on the Seine, he had painted uh, rowers, particularly in and around uh, his country house in Yer. It was a stretch of water that was Not particularly good for sailing, but very, very good for rowing because it was long and placid and smooth and without a lot of current. And so you see this this really beautiful group of pictures of rowers, particularly one that intrigues me is the the one of a man rowing a boat. Uh, We are very much placed as his companion in the boat. He's rowing us and he's dressed in uh, city clothes. Not at all in the in the country clothes or the sport clothes of a, of a rower. It's as if he's come out to the country and and we said, oh, after lunch, won't you like to take a row? And and he goes there in his uh, in his suit and hat. He must be moving at a leisurely pace. <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's funny because everybody is wearing a hat in these paintings. <laughs> they're outside. They're all wearing hats. And by it's in a way by your hat by their hat, she shall know them because obviously the the top hat the chapeau de forme as the french say the top hat distinguishes one kind of man from the slouchy cap which is distinguish another and the bowler hat uh, or the sort of pork pie hat there are there are symbols codes of of who these people are and he is i think evidently a man of certain means though not i think a great aristo or he wouldn't be rowing himself there's also a suggestion maybe in the painting now that you
0: mentioned it that, that maybe he's not the most experienced river guy because, I mean, that hat is going to go any second.
1: When you compare him particularly to the guys in the background behind him and to his, uh, to the picture right uh, who have got on their knit cotton shirts and their sort of they, – they look like English policemen's hats of the early 20th century but made out of straw. They have a, a tall shape, n- not quite like a topee, but uh, – but a, a tall kind of bobby hat shape made out of straw. And I, I, why they were particularly useful, I don't know, because they certainly didn't shield you from the, uh, from the sun in any good way. George Shackelford, thanks
0: so much for talking with me.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Tyler. Anytime.
0: International Pop at the Dallas Museum of Art chronicles the global emergence of pop in the 1960s and early 1970s. While previous exhibitions have primarily focused on the dominance of pop activity in New York and London, this exhibition examines work from artists across the globe who are confronting many of the same radical developments. International Pop navigates a fast-paced world packed with bold and thought-provoking imagery, revealing a vibrant cultural period shaped by widespread political revolution. International Pop is on view October 11th to January 17th. Visit dma.org for more information. Hundreds of neighborhoods, thousands of historic landmarks, one easy search. That's what the Getty, in partnership with the City of Los Angeles, has created with Historic Places LA, the first online information and management system specifically developed for Los Angeles to inventory, map, and describe its significant cultural resources, from places of social importance and architecturally significant buildings to historic districts and bridges. The system is accessible to everyone, ensuring that the ever-changing city keeps a firm hold on its historic roots. Start your virtual trip to Los Angeles at historicplacesla.org. Joaquin Torres-Garcia, the Arcadian Modern, is now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. This major exhibition captures the full scope of Joaquin Torres-Garcia's inventive and influential career, which spanned mediums and avant-garde movements in a way that defied convention and includes paintings, drawings, sculptures, objects, and rare manuscripts. Find out more at moma.org and plan your visit today. Welcome back. My next guest is Museum of Fine Arts Houston paintings conservator Zahira Valise-Bomford. She's been examining several of her museum's Franz Kline paintings, including what may be Kline's first abex canvas, Wotan. She'll present her findings on Thursday, November 12th at a Getty Conservation Institute symposium titled Abstract Expressionism, Time, Intention, Conservation, and Meaning. The GCI organized the event in affiliation with the Clifford Steel Museum Research Center. It's free, it's open to the public, but an advanced ticket is required. We'll have links to the symposium's webpage and to the ticket site on manpodcast.com. Zahira Elise Bomford, welcome to the Modern Art right Notes podcast.
2: Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure to be talking with you.
0: So we're going to talk about Franz Kline here and and at least two of the the four great Franz Kleins in the museum's collection paintings you'll you'll be talking about at the Getty. But before we do, I want to ask kind of a broader question about some of the things conservators are now able to do and, and to what extent that's part of the Getty Symposium. So, for example, how much of what will be discussed and indeed what you will be discussing isn't just about you know the condition of the surface of the painting and, and and things like that and how much of it is how much we c- can we learn from the object about how the object
2: was made i suspect it will be a balance of of those two things we certainly can learn so much more from the object about its making now than we could 20 years ago or 25 years ago the sophistication of the analytical methods that can be brought to bear on minute or um, non-destructive samples to tell us information you know it's it, it's it's amazing i mean if you think of the sophistication of you know the the science in you know kind of tv detective shows you know that sort of you know that's possible to bring to bear now also on 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 studying the makeup of works of art but that's on the on the sort of analytical science side also just by incredibly close looking with microscopes with magnification using some of our now by now quite standard imaging techniques like infrared reflectography or x-radiography you know we we can f- harvest so much information about the process of making For many kinds of artworks that doesn't always necessarily help us figure out the way to fix their problems it helps us understand and identify conservation problems and it helps us to perceive and reconstruct in our minds the making of the work and both of those things are incredibly important sources of information for any conservator making decisions about treatment
0: and for any art historian wanting to know how the thing got done,
2: indeed, indeed, yes. To the, I mean, I, I think especially with the abstract expressionists, I I do feel in a way that the you know the whole movement. I mean, if we can, you know speaking in received terms, you know, this whole group of artists working in New York in the late '40s and early '50s, you know, they they kind of got they were kind of what's the word called sort of kidnapped by by journalism and by criticism. And so much was written about, you know, they were they were named various, you know, action painters or, you know, they, they suddenly got a, an awful lot of talking and writing around them when they were still, you know, they probably weren't even incredibly clear themselves exactly what they were after. And I think in a sense, that's kind of skewed the history. And in many ways, we're finding, certainly with Franz Klein, as we look more closely at the paintings we have here and, you know, compare notes with colleagues in other institutions, he's called an action painter, but, you know, his work was incredibly considered and it certainly wasn't executed in any kind of speedy or emphatic or you know impulsive way. That
0: perfectly leads into the MFA's four glorious, I mean, just crazy glorious Franz Kleins. We'll have images of all of the Kleins we're about to talk about up on manpodcast.com. The first one about which we'll talk may have may have been the first painting of its kind we don't we don't really know but it certainly might have been Uh, wotan from from 1950-51 it is a a black square-ish form on a white ground and i understand that this painting when you began to work on it was in rather urgent need of attention how so and why
2: wotan has got a really interesting material history we do think it's very probable that it was the first painting that Klein executed on a large scale. He This was the first, certainly in his current chronology, it's the first abstract painting that's no longer easel size. I mean, we can just about get it, on, you know, it fits on two easels, but not one easel, but that's, I would call that a watershed. You know, this is, he may have painted other works that have not survived before this one, but Wotan is certainly the first listed on his 19 on, on the list of paintings for his 1950 his first one-man show in new york with the egan gallery which was you know that was one of the important moments
0: just to, just to clarify for a quick moment you mean literally not on an easel he, he tacked the painting up to a wall in his studio to work on
2: absolutely yeah. when he began to work on a large scale he tacked he stretched canvas up onto the wall maybe not always squared but you know roughly squared on the wall because he liked to have a, a hard surface to push the brush against but although that was unconventional he usually applied a ground we think very often it was his own ground perhaps later in the 60s he had a commercially prepared canvas but in the early 60s we think he tended generally to apply his own grounds. And then so literally he moved from the easel and from easel size in order to work, you know, to this watershed moment. He said, well, I'm going to work big now. And I think that that working big was was a big challenge on many fronts, there there is a a quotation somewhere in in the Klein literature about he and another artist having got a great deal on a a big bolt of canvas, but that he was so used to being a really poor artist that he he could hardly bring himself to stretch a whole wall full of canvas, not knowing exactly how the work would would come out. So he had a kind of psychological watershed to get past too. But and, And I think also, technically, I mean, to to move from working you know, on an easel, easel scale to working on wall scale, you know, he had to change his brushes. He had to change the kind of paint he used. As far as we know, he used artist paint up until this important year of the big change of 1950 marked by that Egan Gallery exhibition where suddenly, in order to cover that kind of area, of uh, painting surface, he resorted to house paints. Before that, we believed he'd used exclusively artist paints. There's no, I don't think any clear research has been done on whether he used what, uh, house paint before, but we know that starting in 1950, on the big scale paintings, he used house paint. Partly, not exclusively, there's also some artist paint mixed in, but he had to achieve a couple of important things to, to be able to work like this. One was the flow of the paint that he was applying and also to have a faster drying time because traditional oil paint takes two or three days to dry and it tends to settle, you know, the, it's, and it's expensive compared to house paint. I think he could expand his gesture of application much more easily with the f- free-flowing texture of house paint. And
0: this is a painting that is almost seven feet wide and almost five feet five feet tall. So kind of what what was the condition the, the surfaces of the painting was in, and how did they help you understand how the painting was made and what the condition has to do with him using those two different kinds of paint?
2: It, it's important. Just to point out that early on in its life, we believe while it was still in Klein's possession, this painting must have been damaged. It didn't sell at the 1950 exhibition and it was acquired in about 1956-57 by the legendary collector Robert Skull. Between 1950 and 1956 or 7, it's never mentioned. And between 19... you know 19 let's say 1948 and about 1956 when klein's finally started to have a little bit of little bit of prosperity i mean you know relatively speaking i think he could afford to buy a car it was rather a showy car but you know that was one of his first splashings out you know he really had been you know, he was evicted several times. He, he moved in and out of studios where he also lived. So he was living in single room studio apart, you know, studios where he also cooked and slept and everything else. So that's up and down stairs, up and down, you know, around tight corners and everything. So these paintings were big and he may have rolled them and unrolled them, but at some point in all of those movements. We think Wotan was damaged. We think it got maybe the corner of a banister went through a lower, someplace on the lower corner. And Klein kept it. And we think that he may well have undertaken a kind of repair sometime in the first half of the 50s, possibly just before it was acquired by Skull. Because it's no long, it's originally it was a painting on a strainer. It was canvas stretched on a wooden wooden framework. Since since Skull acquired it, it's been a canvas painting glued down onto a solid bed of masonite and then backed by sort of stretcher stretcher pieces pieces of stre- uh, artist stretcher. And we think this is a repair that Klein did himself because his signature and the datings are on the reverse of the masonite as are all of the exhibition labels from 1956 onwards so in some ways that probably made it a little more stable short term but it meant that the canvas was that and when when he made this structure he trimmed off all of the tacking edges so the problem that we were faced with was that the original paint which He applied, you know, using house paint, using mixtures, diluting. The the paint itself, he didn't know it at the time, but we now know that anything that contains the pigment zinc white can develop. It doesn't have to, but it certainly seems to happen fairly frequently with the abstract expressionists' era. A kind of lateral breaking up of the paint through the paint layer occurs and it's got to do with the way zinc soaps form in oil paint over time so with with wotan any kind of torquing of that structure that i described that that he made because it wasn't a rigid structure any sort of torquing would set up little tensions in the paint film that would be released by cracking so we have two different kinds of cracking But the most worrisome one is the cracking and the lifting, the separation that happens along the length of the paint layer, not up and down through the paint layer. And that is a result of, well, our hypothesis is that that's the result of the particular kind of bad degradation that happens to zinc white pigment or zinc containing pigments. So it was very... Because it had not been stabilised, you know, every time that structure was lifted, every time it was installed on the wall, every time it was taken to storage, every time it went was loaned to an exhibition, a certain amount of torque took place through the structure, and that caused some of these weak weak fissures along the length of the paint film to rupture, and you get separation. So our our main immediate goal in the treatment was to first of all to consolidate wherever possible wherever we had access that lifting that separation in the paint layer and then secondly to stabilize the superstructure so that when it was moved it would no longer be torquing.
0: How does that play out around or next to the black sort of square-like shape on the painting because it seems like, I don't know, it would almost be bumping into the other parts of the painting in ways that could be problematic?
2: I I think that not enough clients have been studied yet to say what's characteristic and what's not characteristic, but in our painting, certainly the delamination or flaking or lifting is 98% in the white. The black... We think it's probably a slightly more conventional paint film. The white, if anything, is slightly somewhat underbound as a paint, whereas the black is richly bound. There's a lot of medium. We think he also added medium. This was also observed in Mahoning at at the Whitney, that there's a special sort of extra fluorescence in the black. And that's, in our view, artists, the result of an artist's choice. But our black is very, very well behaved.
0: What were you able to learn about how quickly or not quickly and how considerately that's a word, Klein made the painting?
2: Well, when we began looking closely, first of all, just at the surface, and then this was very much corroborated and supported by what we could learn through microscopic samples, cross sections, looking at the tiny minute chip of the paint, you know, really smaller than the head of a pin, more like the point of a pin, sideways on under very high magnification. But I'll say first what, what what the initial impression is when you come close to Wotan and begin looking closely at the surface you see that it's incredibly densely layered. There's a lot of paint on that canvas. And to me, immediately that conveyed, I mean, I think it conveyed a kind of quest. You know, this artist, you know, it looks like such a simple composition, but he was doing a lot of paint brushing (laughs) to arrive at that. And as far as we can tell, it wasn't very much busier than that underneath. You know, there sometimes, you know, he's, I think it's fairly well known that he did a lot of editing, certainly in Mahoning, at the Whitney, in our paint, you know, he does edit by painting things out, you know, that's why it's very considered, he has to reflect and look and decide, oh, that that black is too large an area, and, and often then would painted out with white sometimes he liked the kind of gray that he got and sometimes he painted out completely so he's editing all the time but it's not it's not haphazard it's editing undertaken after a good look at the painting and we do have a little bit of editing but it's 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 as though he's sort of emphasizing and coming to terms with the the rectangular which is certainly a very prominent aspect of wotan by tracing tracing the contours of the of the rectangle and as he's known to have you know believed really working for a kind of equilibrium between the black and the white that the tension is the same that both seem to occupy the surface equally and i think his quest of that equilibrium in this painting is why we have so much paint
0: so he knew i mean you know many weeks many you know layer let it dry layer let it dry layer take a look
2: well we know certainly in 1952 that he took a long time making a painting i mean he, he painted on one work over something like six to eight months i think or always on the wall, and then, of course, he decided the final format far, far, far along in the painting process. I would say that's his habitual, his more typical practice. It's really hard to say in this build-up to his 1950 show, which took place in December. We have a drawing also in our collection that is very clearly directly related to Wotan, and that drawing is made on a piece of newsprint from a New York Herald Tribune literary supplement from August 13th, 1950. So if Wotan, we've found that out through our colleagues in paper conservation and conservation imaging got a wonderful infrared (laughs) photograph so we could read the newspaper that it was, that the the drawing, which also had paint on it, was, was made on. So we know that you know he was actively working on wotan around august 1950 there were 11 other paint 10 other paintings that were shown in his 1950 show they were all in his december show so you know maybe once he got wotan right he worked much faster on the subsequent works but you know basically we think that that show was painted between let's say midsummer and december 1950 and you know there are photographs of his ninth street studio and you know and it's not a big place so there must have been a lot of you know up and down on the wall moving things around you know so it seems like that show was prepared in maybe a slightly more focused, concentrated way.
0: So we're running low on time, but I don't want to skip Orange and Black Wall, which which comes eight or nine years later after Wotan. It's one of the great clines. What about the surface and condition of Orange and Black Wall is different from Wotan? And does it suggest anything about what Klein was doing differently by the end of the 50s than at the beginning of the 50s?
2: We think that in orange and black wall, we actually have some things that are the same. Again, there's an enormous weight and charge of paint on the canvas. You know, there are sort of six or seven layers. As in Wotan, there are six different white paints used in Wotan. We we think, once again, it's it's. It's kind of a watershed piece. It was a commission for Robert Skull. It's big. It's certainly one of the largest paintings he'd made until then. Maybe not the largest, certainly the largest color painting he'd done uh, of the abstracts. So, again, we think there was definitely a process of seeking, of a, a quest to find how he could achieve in color that same equality that he claims to have been seeking always in his black and white paintings. One difference is that in because there are many, many other pigments in orange and black wall, a lot of them behave differently. They have different drying tensions. We also think there's a combination of, there's a lot of artist paint, but there's also some house paint in orange and black wall, which kind of contradicts, Sidney Janis said, when when he, Klein began Came into his gallery, that he started paying for Klein's paints. Well, Klein, you know, working on a big scale. I think he'd really got used to and liked the way pe- house paint handled. It's designed for working on a big scale. But essentially, in orange and black wall, it's unlined. Both of our both of the paintings we've discussed so far, they've never been varnished, and they're both unlined. I mean, the the Wotan is slightly lined by the artist which is another conservation challenge, but but orange and black has not been lined. But that weight of paint on the canvas and the drying tensions that develop in those six or seven or eight layers of paint in some areas, or in Wotan, again, the, the weight of the paint puts enormous stress on the ground layer, which is what the artist applies to the canvas before he begins painting, before the painting process proper begins. In both cases, the ground is not of good quality, especially this is the case in Wotan. It's like a layer of sand, and I think it's probably because he was diluting so much to make it, to make the ground that he'd mixed up to to, to go as far as possible, so it's too underbound. And again, in in, in Orange and Black Wall, this, the force of the drying tensions in that paint is just too much for the ground, and so there's the the point of weakness is between the ground and the canvas or sorry sorry between the ground. The ground in both paintings is the weak link between the paint and the canvas, so those are in those are problems that we have not yet. Decided how to approach for in, in terms of actual practical intervention because they're very complicated
0: i don't know if it's that I'm paying more attention in the last couple of years or or that it's new, but when i've spoken with conservators about works about abex big abex works from this period, it seems that the issue of weight seems to come up more and more
2: yeah there's a lot of you know the paint was cheap, so in a sense they and and it was part of their that was part of their expression. It's just that you know they're at this transition moment between I mean, this is one thing i I actually think of the the abstract expressionists not necessarily as the people who were starting a whole new way of looking at art. I actually see them as the last in a great line of people who actually worked on canvas in this traditional, strange, western, cultural practice of putting paint on a canvas. Because they're still doing that. They're they're just, they're pushing it to the very edge of what it can do, technically. I mean, there's only so much weight that a conventional linen canvas can bear and keep in plane. So, so I mean, it's a, it's a, re- and I think the other thing that happens is that these paintings are getting to a point in their aging right now where these kinds of um, this wonderful conservation phrase, the inherent vice, isn't that a great phrase? The inherent vice of the artists of the materials the artist used are beginning to, man- you know, that's beginning to be manifest, and that's why some of these problems are getting focused now. You know, a lot of Abex paintings were treated in the f- 50s, 60s, 70s. That was all in the life of the artists. in many cases. In many cases, that was in the life of the artist. It's different now. We are at a remove of like one and a half generations. We, it's not so easy for us to have a conversation with the artist and say, you know, do you mind if I reline this with a penetrating adhesive? So we don't, we don't have them to help with those decisions. But their works are really getting to the point now where some better techniques of intervention need to be designed. Because we've never conservators have never faced this problem before.
0: Well Zahira valise Bomford, thanks so much for talking with me.
2: It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
0: That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth.